Hello and welcome. You're joining us here on the I'm a Mame Framer podcast, brought to you by the Open Mame Frame Project, a Linux Foundation collaborative project. I'm your host today, or at least I am for the first 30 seconds. My name's Stephen Dickens, and I'm joined by a dear friend and former colleague, Joe Winchester. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for, thanks for having me on the show. And I guess, so, is this a point when, when we switch roles? When I, yeah. yeah, well, so let's just explain to our listeners. I'm obviously the voice you get to hear most weeks, but Joe and I decided to flip things around today. And Joe's going to be your host and I'm going to be the guest. So, Joe, I'll stop talking and let you take over the show. All right. Thanks, Stephen. You're looking well. I think the last time we, we met in person was in San Diego, wasn't it? That was yeah, for that's a, a while ago now. A while ago. Open Source Summit. Yeah, so yeah, you're looking good. Just want to extend, uh, you know, our best wishes to everybody else, obviously, uh, you know, at home with pandemic and, and, and so forth. Um, hope you're all well. Hope you're all staying safe. And so, Stephen, a few questions I've got to start. The first obvious one is, uh, last time we met, you and IBM. Okay. And then I saw something on LinkedIn where you said, well, I've, I'm, anyway, talk me through what's going on with your uh, career right now. Um, where, where are you now? And um, to just fill in people on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for the new listeners to the show, I am a long time IBM. I was at IBM for 10 years, um, was involved in setting up the Open Mainframe project as part of one of my roles. Um, so ended up kind of running the marketing committee for a while and ended up as the host of the show. Um, about, what is it now, two and a half months ago, I decided to move and sort of progress a, a really interesting new step in my career, which was to um, take my opinions and get paid for writing about them. Um, so as anybody knows me, um, I've had an opinion for a long time, <laughs> and it's been a challenge for particular roles. Um, but all joking aside, where I am now is I've got sort of really two roles for a, a fast-growing tech analyst firm called Futurum Research. So what we do is if you think we're in the sort of same space as a Gartner, an IDC, or a Forrester, but a lot more nimble, a lot more social media and new media focused, more podcasts, webcasts, kind of getting that message out in a lot more of a consumable fashion. So I've joined them to do two things, to be a, an analyst for about 25% of my time, um, covering the mainframe and enterprise computing space, covering blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and, and open source as a technology area. So relatively narrow swim lane, um, which kind of, that equates to the 25% of my time. The other 75% of my time is to run the revenue side of Futurum's business. So sales, client engagements, um, and business development. Cool. Thanks, Stephen. So very quickly, does that mean this is goodbye and farewell? For no, it does not. Mainframe? No, it does not. You're stuck with me, listeners, unfortunately. So um, working with Chris and John and, and Madeline, we thought the podcast was working well. Um, and given that I'm still going to be involved in the mainframe space and still covering the space cl closely, we mm -hmm. thought it was a good thing to just keep 
keep on trucking with the show and keep things rolling. So unless this is a reverse takeover, Joe, the the listeners are the listeners are stuck with me. Not at all, Stephen. Not at all. No, and, and it wasn't. <laughs> but so 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 it's great to hear that you'll still be doing the podcast. Um, you know, it's wonderful, and and, and I I know people who personally tell me um, how much they get out of it. What about the RMP? You talked about um, your new venture. I'm sorry, I just. Futurum Research. Yeah, so that's really interesting. That's a good question, actually. How am I going to stay involved? So Uh, Yeah, with with mainframe. You touched on open source. Yeah, is there a mainframe angle? Are you casting your net a bit wider? Is there something that you can... Yeah, talk talk to that if you could. Thanks. Yeah, so my net's going to be a bit wider than just purely the mainframe. Um, I'm also covering the sort of fintech, blockchain, and cryptocurrency space. If anybody follows me on Twitter, they know that's a, a particular focus for me. But still looking to build a mainframe practice within Futurum. So still going to stay very close to some of the main vendors, you know, the likes of IBM, BMC, CompuWare. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm doing a panel session at the Open Mainframe Summit in a few weeks' time. So still heavily involved in the community. Where I'm going to be involved in the Open Mainframe project specifically is we've been working on a role with the board where I would stay in, in a limited capacity as a board advisor for specific topics. And I was really keen to sort of stay involved in the project. It's It's been a particular kind of focus for me since we set it up um, mm-hmm. back in 2015. So really wanted to stay and donate my time to the community in any way I can to sort of make sure that this platform continues to be successful and continues to drive the innovation that we've seen. That's wonderful. That's wonderful to hear, Stephen. So talk me through a little bit. So back in 2015, I think, is OMP is obviously part of Linux Foundation. Linux needed, Linux on the mainframe needed a home. It was just, you know, it was absolutely sort of lock and key. It was a perfect fit. But then it's transitioned into the sort of whole ZOS world as well. And I'm wondering what you see, is there anything that you, looking back, is there anything that you wish the OMP had achieved during your time there or anything that you would sort of like to kind of pass the torch on and from the outside say, you know what, this should be the next five years strategy. Um, This is where I'd like the OMP and the mainframe to go. Yeah, I mean, Certainly the original mandate and the original extent of our thought back in 2015 was we had some code. We wanted to donate that to the open source community. We felt that there was a open source movement we could build around, particularly Linux on the platform. So that was kind of the probably the project's focus for maybe even the first couple of years, really trying to work and promote, bring more products and open source projects to the platform through having a collaborative outreach to the wider open source community. When the Zoe project came forward, it was a really interesting pivot for where OMP was. And I think it was the natural home. I was involved in a lot of the conversations. I think the collaboration between (coughs) what at the time was CA, what was Rocket Software and, and IBM, getting those three organizations to work together programmatically and strategically and pull other players in, the Open Mainframe Project was the only mechanism to do that. So I think it was a really interesting pivot for the project. I think what's happened is now the project's a lot more balanced. It really, truly does suit the platform. It suits 
you've got the strong Linux and open source community. You know, Suze do a great job there, Canonical and Red Hat. There's a whole sort of community of players that take uh, an active role in bringing new products and new open source packages to the platform. So I think that's kind of a strong and vibrant community. But I, I think the addition of the ZOS space <coughs> has been really, really interesting to grow. And I, I think the success of Zoe is, is really interesting. Um, I think where I'd like it to see go forward, I still think there's some satellite parts of the community that really are trying to take on administrative tasks that I don't think they need to. So let me explain kind of what I mean there. So there's some groups out in Europe and other parts of the world, maybe that aren't aware of the Open Mainframe Project and its mission, yeah. that are trying to promote the platform, taking on administrative tasks that could quite easily fit under the OMP and, the, and, and ultimately the Linux Foundation structure where the support staff that we could, that they could tap into. So the, you know, academic um, activities yeah. going on in Germany and places out in China. And, you know, there's various pockets of activity around the globe that I think could pull into and just lev continue to do what they're doing, continue to be a local focal point. Yeah, you but talk just... about acad academic. I don't know if you could talk to that, Stephen. So one of the things that I'm uh, kind of very proud of working alongside colleagues like, you know, Cameron Saye and Sudarshana Sunivisan and others is, for example, COBOL. So when COBOL got a bit of a beating at the start of the pandemic, I think there was, you know, some US government systems were under duress and they were sort of pointing the finger at COBOL. And the RMP was really in the right place with some of its training material. I don't know... If you could talk to that, I think that was something for me that was an eye opener. I think there's now 8,000 people have gone through the OMP COBOL training course. It's the most popular Slack channel. It's got almost 4,000 registered Slack users compared to the next Slack channel, which is, an... so, so talk to that. Do you think the academic stuff is very, very key to the future and of OMP? I, I absolutely do. I wrote a piece um, and we'll put the link in the show notes here. Um, around the Grace Hopper Code for Us Act that um, one of the congressmen, Congressman Cartwright put forward. I think it was either last week or the week before. And, and I think that's where the OMP and particularly the COBOL Working Group is making really good inroads. I, was, I, I spent some time doing some research for the piece that I put together. And, and what was interesting for me is the OMP was a rallying point for all of the participants in the mainframe ecosystem that had a role to play in promoting COBOL on the platform. I think what the COBOL working group is doing to promote in a non-vendor specific way, COBOL on the platform is just exactly what the OMP should be doing. I think Derek and the team at Microfocus are doing a fantastic job to kind of steward that but it's not about one particular vendor. That language and the success of that language on our platform for our clients, for the platform's vibrancy as a whole, is just vital. So I think, it's, yeah. it, I think that's exactly it? where the OMP should be spending its time, those collaborative efforts that are just good for the platform all right. Yeah, you talk about a rallying point, and it is, you're amazing because not only you know, Cameron, Derek, the whole OMP, the COBOL working group, then there was the training course, 
Then the training course itself started to use technology. It was Zoe technology, which you brought up before. VS Code, which is, you know, number one. It's what the kids use these days. Um, so it had some Zoe tech that it could throw into the mixture as well. That couldn't have occurred without the OMP. You know, and you talked about vendors. So I'm going to touch on that a little bit. Do you feel, actually, there's two things I'd like to talk about. I'm doing a Spanish Inquisition for you. The first one I want to talk about beforehand, open source on the mainframe. For some mainframe customers, I've been on the mainframe for I don't know, 25 years or something like that. They, they look at open source and they think, well, you're just going to let in malware. You're going to let in, I'm going to lose control of stuff. You know, I'm betting my business on this. This is 24 seven line of business, banking, financial transactions. There's an element of mistrust. How, how do you address that? And, and how would you address that to the sort of CEO of an organization saying, I'm not going to bet my business on OMP tech. So it's really interesting. And I think you're starting to see some of these open source companies become multi-billion dollar companies. I wrote a piece on Suze. You know, they're now a market cap of over $6 billion. You know, MongoDB with a multi-billion dollar market cap. Obviously, IBM paying $34 billion for Red Hat a couple of years ago. I think what we've seen is we, and, you know, Linux is now 30 years this year. We've seen open source move from the developer and the hobbyist into mission critical environments. And the model is the innovation happens in the community and then people offer enterprise support contracts, testing, certification and support contracts on top of that dynamic open source base. So I think you know, open mainframe project and Zoe and these technologies are relatively new to this space. We've had Linux on the platform for what is it just over 20 years now, but open source on ZOS is, is a couple of years old. I think what I'd see emerging over the next couple of years is somebody taking an enterprise snap of Zoe, turning it into a supported product with a 1-800 number that you could call that would get supported, it'll be tested. You know, you maybe ring 1-800 IBM or 1-800 Broadcom, and there's a there's a supported version of Zoe that you can get the same 24 by 7, you know, SEV1, SEV2 level support on. So, so you've got somebody, the, somebody to throw a rock at, right? Yeah, somebody Basically. can... Yeah. Yeah, so, it's, you know, it's Bank of America or City or Barclays can say that it's as supported as anything else, but you've still got that strong open source innovation going on and the community still thrashing at code. So it's really but interesting. Then there's to a snap so it's, of like, it. it's like the kind of relationship between, I guess you could say Unix and Red Hat Linux or or um, you know Jenkins and CloudBees or, or things like that. Yeah. And it's interesting you should bring that up because there is something called the Zoe conformance program. Mm -hmm. And they're actually coming up with a conformance badge for vendors to offer support. And I don't know if I just pre-announced something, but I think so. No, I think it was talked about at Share just the other couple of days ago by Rose Sekesh and Mike Dubois. But that's exactly the kind of thing that we're hearing from customers that Broadcom and others are hearing as well. And people who want to bet the farm on Zoe say, yeah, we understand that the entire world runs, you know, the entire cloud, the internet runs on open source. But when things go wrong, we need to be able to throw a rock at someone and say, mm -hmm. you know what, 
help us fix it. Or we need to download from trusted vendors where we know that they've taken the time to, you know, scan for dependencies and perhaps do penetration testing and things like that. And that's where you get that dynamic. So that's good. For me, it's the difference between Fedora and Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Okay. Fedora is an open source, you know, there'll be things that break. The community runs around fast and fixes it. There's not a lot of testing that goes on in Fedora. You know, it's the wild west of open source and exactly that's what it's designed to be. But if you want to go and run your mission critical, you know, banking system on Linux, you'll be buying a commercial distribution from Red Hat, SUSE, Canonical, you know, one of those probably three vendors. I'd see the same pattern emerging in the mainframe space. There'll be the Zoe community version, and then there'll be the Zoe supported version, you know, probably from a Rocket, an IBM, a Broadcom, a, a, comp, a BMC. You know, those typical vendors I would imagine would get into that space and offer a fully supported, fully tested, you know, number you can call in the dead of night and get a support engineer to do some work on. So uh, that's how I'd see the market evolving. And I, I think that'd be positive for Zoe and for the mainframe space overall. Yeah, Stephen, I think we must be getting old when we're talking about phone numbers. My 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 son um, reminded me the other day, he's like, Dad, I've just blown the limit on my, he had a 10 gig phone contract. So I had to upgrade him to an unlimited one. Yeah, because he was watching so much video. And I went and had a look and I said, well, you've got unlimited minutes as well. He's like, and he said, minutes, what's that? <laughs> and we hadn't looked at his last bill. He'd used like, I don't know, uh, you know, a 10.1 gig of, of data. And he'd, he'd, he'd used like no minutes for an entire month. Yeah, so, so maybe logging on to a customer <laughs> portal and logging your severity. I know, I'm just messing with you. Via, via an app on your phone. But let's, yeah. let's maybe try and be a bit, a bit cooler <laughs> than a 1-800 number. No, I'm just messing with you too. Okay, so... Um, I'm going to switch a little bit towards some questions. So you did a huge amount for obviously for OMP and for IBM in your time here. What do you, if you could give advice to yourself, your sort of younger self, and I'm just going to go back in time through a few sort of fossils, give advice to yourself when the OMP started. So you're going back to 2015. Yeah? Okay. And then I'll go back a little bit further in time. What advice would you give to yourself and the collaborators? What would you have done differently for the last six years? Obviously, you're very proud of all the good stuff, but there must be something when you thought, you know what, we kind of got that wrong, or we bet we put our chips on the wrong table. What would you? How would you so I that? think we probably didn't spot the ZOS opportunity early enough. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think we could have got, we could have maybe got something like Zoe out a year earlier if we'd have really sort of collaborated. I think that the three vendors kind of went themselves for a while before it came to the OMP. So maybe we could have fast-tracked things there. And then I think the other thing I kind of always regret is that it's been a European and American project more than it's been a truly global project. We've tried to engage with the team, the, the China Labs team for IBM, we tried to engage with some of the clients um, and some of the vendors in other parts of the world. You know, I'd love to see Hitachi, who take the hardware and OEM it, become part of the Open Mainframe project. I know there's a huge, vibrant open source community um, out that the Linux Foundation has in in Japan, for instance. And I know we've got some huge 
mainframe customers um, running Linux in Japan. So I think if I was to be super critical of a project, I think that's been very successful over the last six years, I think it would be getting earlier into ZOS. And I think it would be the international dynamic. And if, if I was being super critical, I think the way, you know, maybe the accelerated timeline of Zoe would be just a nice to have. I think the international side is, is certainly crucial, you know, getting more customers represented from other parts of the world. You know, there's huge deployments of Linux in particular out in China, getting the community down there and the China labs team connected to the open mainframe project would be, would be the thing I don't think we've done a very good job of. It's interesting how you say that. So yeah, I mean, yeah, don't beat yourself up too much because I do think there is a little bit of change occurring. Um, I was at a open mainframe summit virtual in Japan that took mm-hmm. place early this year. I was there with Sudarshna from the COBOL. Uh, John was there as well. I, I had to stay awake till one, it was between one and three in the morning for me. So uh, I listened to the recording afterwards and I thought, oof. Uh, it's, it's, anyway, you, you probably pulled the graveyard ship. Um, I probably had a bit too much coffee that day when you're speaking to, but, but that was a first, that was a one-off. I think perhaps, I think 140 people I think joined. Then from, <laughs> in my experience, I presented Zoe it's quite recent, but I've had uh, Turkish users groups reach out and be interested. Turkey is, you know, half in Europe, half in Asia. It's that wonderful melting pot of the two cultures. Um, but you're right, there's more to be done. Um, and presumably one of the things that you must be quite proud of, and I'm very proud of working with Linux Foundation. Linux Foundation is, is massively focused on diversity, right? When you do conference mm-hmm. panels, uh, you know, that the, they are very focused on making sure that they do have diversity, they do have reach across all parts of the globe and you know, all parts of the human race in whatever form that takes. So I agree there's more to be done, but there is. Okay, so going back a little bit further in time, so on the... Only just a little bit, if you can start... Just a little bit to your 21st birthday, if you can remember, if you can remember that party, Stephen. What, would you, what advice, what career advice would you give to yourself then, what, what advice would you say? I, I wish I'd known this and I wish I'd done this differently. So we're talking about just a couple of years before 2015. Is that what we're saying, Joe? <laughs> exactly. Um, no, I mean, I think for me, what I mean, I graduated university in 1995 and I think I've been really sort of lucky to work for a, probably two big companies during that time, time at IBM for 10 years and time prior to that for Hewlett Packard as it was back then um, for 10 years prior to that. So, you know, and then straight out of college was at, at what was CA, now is Broadcom. I think the variety has been the thing I've enjoyed most about my career and I'm, you know, working for a company with sort of 30 people now. I think advocate for yourself go and be challenged every day in what you do and try and look for new challenges and things that you are stepping outside your comfort zone you know i look at what i'm doing now i have to write a research article a day now if anybody knows me i always like to write and i've always got an opinion but writing a research quality note of sort of 12 1500 words every day is pushing me out of my comfort zone. Absolutely love it. But I think stretch yourself, look for new challenges, go and take that job you're only 
kind of half qualified to go take and advocate for yourself of, I think we were joking as we were setting up the call, you know, fake it until you make it and kind of <laughs> stumble through. Because if, if you advocate for yourself and you actually go and push yourself out of your comfort zone, you'll find that the half of the job that you're not qualified to do, you'll very quickly get up to speed on and you'll be able to leverage skills and experiences and capabilities from your career before you took the job that'll get you there a lot faster than you probably would think you would. So I think just advocate for yourself and be curious and go and stretch yourself. I, I, I think I've done that, but the places I've been most successful and the things I've kind of gone and done where I've backed myself, I'm thinking of the job I've got now and my first job working for CA, those were massive moonshots. And I think I'm sort of six weeks into this job, so I'll tell you in a, maybe you can have me back on the show in no, a couple of I'm, years to see whether it's worked out, Joe, but I'm absolutely to. loving it so far. But that's really interesting to hear. So that's a very much the kind of, I know, I, did, I read a biography of Richard Branson's autobiography, and he had very much the same thing in his career. He said, when somebody asks you to do something that you don't know how to do, just say yes, and then figure out how. Um, and... It's interesting to hear. Do you, so do you think that sometimes people lose that ability to, why do people lose that spark? Right, when you're a, when you're a child, you're, you know, you're learning a new language, you're learning a new instrument, you're learning a new hobby, you'll jump on a skateboard until you, you know, and then that, that veneer goes, that, that kind of youth, youthfulness goes. And I suppose what you're saying is, don't to keep renewing it. Keep drinking from the fountain of youth. Well, as you there's a, there's a book that I there's a book that I love. Uh, Who moved my cheese? It's a, it's a really sort of it's a book about change, and it fundamentally comes down to which type of mouse you are. If if you've not read the book, I'm certainly not spoiling anything. There's two mice in a maze, and they've got a plethora of cheese that's delivered to them every day. Life is good. Then one day the cheese isn't there. And it's how those two mice react to the cheese moving. And, you know, it's, a, it's a, a parable for, you know, somebody changes the co corporate email service. Are you the person who moans about it? Or do you just go, well, I can figure this out if I watch a couple of YouTube videos and just throw myself into it. Um, we had the same with when Slack came to IBM. You know, it's kind of, do I hang on to same time and kind of be the last user who has it pried from my fingers or do I just go, well, this is happening. I don't know Slack. It looks a bit scary, but I'm just going to throw myself in. And I, I think trying to learn something new, whether that's a new language, a new tool, you know, I wasn't a podcast host before I started podcasting, you know, so it was kind of like, okay, I think I can hang a sentence together. I think I can interview guests. Okay, let's sign myself up to be a podcast host for the Linux Foundation every, you know, every three or four weeks with with Chris and the team. I think you've just got to throw yourself in, back that you'll figure it out and kind of go from there. And keep giving up and just like you know, even though I, I you, even though you're not twenty one, just for. Uh, listeners that can't see Stephen, but, uh, <laughs> but, but keep doing it throughout. That, that is wonderful advice for, for anything that people are doing. Yeah, and you've so got to do that. At all, yeah. You've got to do it at all stages of your career. It's I'm kind of in my late yeah. 40s now, and I, I think I'm going to try and keep this mindset for as long as possible. And this was one of the reasons, you know, amongst many of why I left IBM. It was 
I just want to go try something different. I've never worked for a small company. You know, we've got 30 people. I've only ever worked for companies that have got, you know, thousands and thousands and even tens or hundreds of thousands of employees. Let me go push myself outside of my comfort zone and see whether I can kind of go do that. It's brilliant. Well, if it doesn't work out, you could always get a job as a as a motivational speaker. I think I'm just inspired listening to you. And I mean that's a become Simon Sinek version two. I, I can see you're laughing. But but another question that I just want to finish with, and this is one obviously that I know you ask everybody on your podcast. So um, it's a great way to to tell out. What look into your crystal ball? Where do you see the mainframe in five years? And if I'd like to add a little slight twist on this, have you seen? You're a Tolkien fan, Lord of the Rings. There's a wonderful scene, I think it's perhaps the second movie, where um, Frodo Baggins looks into this, I think it's like a, a sort of fountain, and he sees this terrible future where everything's on fire and Hobbiton's on fire and, and you know the Dark Lord has presided. And then he's told by Galadriel, you saw a future that doesn't have to happen. You know, it's still in your hands. So, 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 so what's the worst future you could see for the mainframe? And the most pleasant and what's the road what's the path that can lead people towards anyway i, I just noodle that idea for, for a bit if you could oh, that's, a, that's a really good way to rephrase it um joe i think so i think the mainstream media or tech media covers the platform with sepia-toned pictures mm-hmm. of the mainframe and we talked about COBOL. All of the coverage around COBOL was if was as if this COBOL was running on a thirty, you know, system three hundred and sixty that had never been upgraded. Um, so, I, so I think if we as a community buy into that version of the truth mm-hmm. or that version of the lie, if, if probably more accurately, it then will define our own future. So, you know, we've got to talk about this platform as an open source powerhouse. We've got to talk about it as a platform where innovation happens. We've got to talk about these languages that run on the platform. We've got to talk about containerization and cloud native. We've got to adopt the language of the of the wider tech space mm-hmm. so that we don't end up in that negative sort of sepia-toned picture view of the world where this is a legacy platform you know if we talk about it in that way that'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy and then if you were to ask me so that's probably the the worst view of the world and how we avoid that's it the hobbiton on fire with the dark yeah yeah that, and, yeah. And, and that's in our destiny to control that as a community mm-hmm. i think the best version of this world is where ibm's taking the platform with things like hyper protect if you're a hyper-protect customer, you don't know you're running on a mainframe. You're just consuming services provided by IBM Cloud, and they happen to be running in an IBM data center somewhere, and you may even not know that you're running on a, on a mainframe platform at the back end. I think that cloud experience has got to be the best version of where the platform could be. So customers are always going to want to have things on-premises, but I think increasingly they're wanting to have things in the public cloud. And if they can get access to ZOS services, VSC, you know, a, a container of ZOS in the IBM cloud or in, in Sonos cloud or DXC's cloud or Kindrel's cloud or, you know, whatever cloud provider is providing that service, if they can get a 
multi-tenant mainframe service where they're able to scale and grow and shrink and do everything you would do on a cloud platform as a service, that'll be the best version of this world five years out. And I think that's a very pragmatic view of what's going to happen over the next five years. So I don't see that as aspirational. I think, you know, from things I've seen and conversation as I've been involved in, I think that's a realistic roadmap to expect that we're going to see those things start to evolve over the next two, three, four, five years. And there's going to be a client somewhere in the world within the next five years who's running on a multi-tenant, scalable, public cloud-style ZOS service who genuinely doesn't know where their workload is, doesn't care, and isn't worrying whether the box is in their data center or somewhere somebody else's. And I That's think if really we get picture. to that, if yeah. we get to that world, then a lot of the baggage that comes with the platform just won't be there any longer. And it's very prescient, isn't it? I mean, the, every morning when I log on, there's been another ransomware attack or another. There's bad actors all over the planet, you know, and. And the platform has a lot to offer in that space. And, and mm -hmm. you're right, getting some of those infrastructure as a service and platform and software as a service in the cloud really does play into that. It might be a space of, you know, a case of being in the right place at the right time. I think, awesome. there's a, yeah. I think there's a gap in the market for performance, availability, scalability, and security that the mainframe is known for those four characteristics. We were talking about it as an analyst team only this only this morning following the, the poly network hack that happened yesterday in the DeFi space. Mm -hmm. there, there's a, there, those four requirements for enterprise computing, mission-critical computing, you know, systems of record, whatever the buzzwords are, those four characteristics of performance, availability, security, and scalability are always going to be there. The mainframe is a natural platform for those types of workloads. Mm -hmm. And what we're at an inflection point, I think, is where the industry is going to make the consumption of the mainframe easier to get hold of, easier to interact with. You know, that some of the pricing stick stickiness and issues will go away and it will truly be a consumable platform that'll sit within a public cloud type framework and that will lead to just further workloads coming to the platform and it'll lead to new potentially even a raft of new customers starting to gravitate to the platform because it's easy to onboard you know maybe the skills challenges get easier it's just oh well, i need a mission critical database oh the db2 zos has all the characteristics of the thing i need well, you, don't, yeah. you don't need a DP, DB2 sysprog to go figure it out because that's all managed via the SRE team in the IBM cloud or the Insono cloud. or the. It's awesome, yeah. And looping back to everything you said at the start about education, the RMP is in a really good place to provide that education, get the academics, get the students, get the Gen Z kids coming out. Okay, Stephen, this has been awesome. I'm just looking at keeping on the time. I've got one final question I want to ask you. A little curveball here. Imagine... I'm your fairy godmother. Yeah, you don't have to think too hard about that. And I've just given you a wand and, and, and it's a one wish wand. And it comes with the usual caveat. You can't wish for more wishes and all that, all that sort of stuff uh, as in Aladdin's cave. 
what would be the one wish you would have for the mainframe community, especially with a slant at OMP and LF? The one thing that you could say, you know, this is really hard, but I'm going to solve it. And it's, it's gone. That, that, what would be that one wish that you would have? So I think it would be for, so we've, we've got a couple of customers as part of the OMP board. And I think going back to your question about what I think we've sort of done a good job and not done Mm -hmm. such a great job. I think if I could have one wish, it would be to get five or six more customers onto the board of the open mainframe project. Cause I think we've got the academic community. So well sorted, you know, people like Cameron and Herb and, you know, Harry at Marist, they do an amazing job. The team at VCU, you know, there's some fantastic academic members of the project. I think we've got a really good job with vendors. You know, we've but got we a wide customer. So if there vendors. is a customer listening to this, and I hope there will be, and thank you for staying this long, how can they get involved? What's the what's the step they should take? What's the the plunge, the email, the website? What's what should be their next step to make your wish come true? So, I mean, John um, Murtick does a fantastic job for us as the programme director for the project. So he's that's the John, most... John Murtick at openmaker.com. So, so he's jmurtick at linuxfoundation.org. So okay. that would be the... And we'll Thanks, put Stephen. this in the show notes. Chris will keep us okay, honest sure. and put this in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Get involved in the... Go to openmainframeproject.org um, and, and there's contact details there. You'll be able to get in touch with John, mm-hmm. you know, reach out to me on Twitter and I can get you connected. Stephen uh, Dickens three on Twitter. There's, I mean, the community is pretty okay. open and easy to get a whole world off. And if they do that, can that all confidence? Can that all be done under non-disclosure and stuff? So oh, there yeah. can be yeah, private yeah. I mean, conversations that take place. Okay. Yeah, right. absolutely. The, 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 funds, the, yeah. the path for a customer to get involved is really accommodating of what the concerns a customer would have. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the members that we've got, ADP have been a, a founding member. They're very reluctant to have their name mentioned. Um, and I won't mention it again um, for that reason, but they've been a really strong supporter of the project in the background behind the scenes. And so there's roles for customers to take that type of role. I mean, or they can be as vocal as they want to be, but, uh, you know, certainly we could, the model can accommodate that. Brilliant. So if there's any customers listening who want to make your wish come true, that's all they have to do is have to email you with Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to talk to myself and everybody else. It's been wonderful. And no, good, Joe, luck thank with, you. good luck with your next analyst report. You, it, <laughs> your job sounds like Groundhog Day, you know, Groundhog Day coupled with the nightmare. You know the nightmare where every day somebody, where somebody says... It, it absolutely is, Joe. I need to, I need to find ground, yeah. something to write Sorry. about every day. So there's, the pressure is always on. But no, Joe, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Great to have the roles flipped around here. You've been listening to the I'm a Mainframer podcast brought to you by the Linux Foundation. If you like what you've heard, please click and subscribe. And if you really like what you've heard, give us a five-star rating and tell your friends. We'll put the details in the show notes of the things that we talked about. But please join us again next time for the I'm a Mainframer podcast. Speak to you soon.